Genesis chapter 33, picking up in our saga that is Genesis and coming back with Jacob, coming back to face his brother Esau. So before we look at the passage tonight, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for our time, and we ask you to bless your word tonight so that it would speak to us for your glory, God. Uh, have your spirit work, and as it works in our hearts even now, God, mold us and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, and make us better believers in you, better followers of you. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 33, of course, picks up where we left off last week, the end of chapter 32. At the end of Genesis 32, we found Jacob having fear, trembling with fear, terrified, as it says, to meet his brother Esau face to face. We saw in chapter 32, Jacob praying for the first time there in verses 9 through 12. We saw him praying to the Lord, but we also saw how he made his plans and then he prayed. Remember that? He made his plan, then he prayed, and then he went through with his plan, almost as if he was saying, God, here's what I want to do. Now you bless me in this. And when we saw his plan, it wasn't the healthiest of plans, if you will. Jacob's plan was to send all of his people in before he goes. Let, him, let everybody go and let them have all my oxen. In other words, appease Esau with a bunch of gifts so hopefully he's not mad when he gets to me. It wasn't a very uh, manly or godly plan in any way. When Jacob sent all of the people away, he was there alone waiting. And then we know what happened that evening as he is awake he begins, to, uh, he begins to find himself in a wrestling, wrestling match. And he's in a wrestling match with a figure that he does not at first recognize, but then he later does come to see that figure as the Lord God himself he was wrestling with. And so there he wrestles and he says he saw the Lord God face to face. The Lord God, uh, they wrestle all night. Jacob puts up a fight. The Lord God, as I said last week, doesn't always play what we would term fair. And let me remind you that we don't want God to be fair, do we? Um, if you find God being fair with us, then we'd all be set for an eternal hell. God is gracious, and we want him to be gracious. Even when we are turning away from him and running from him, I need him to knock my hip out of socket sometimes so that I don't get too far gone and he brings me back to himself. That's where Jacob found himself. And Jacob, there wrestling with God, says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And just as I said last week, this seems to be that turning point, that key. We have seen Jacob build up to this. He went from the deceiver that deceived his dad, deceived Esau, everything else, the mama's boy that, that, that worked deals and just became the deceiver to the one who ran away and had to leave his family and went to his uncle Laban. And the deceiver got out deceived by Laban and he worked there for 20 years. We've seen his steady growth in faith, if you will, in the process. We've kind of watched that. But it was at this point when Jacob wrestled with God, it was at this point that I believe Jacob truly understood his dependence on him. 
surrendering himself to him. Remember I said before this, Jacob was like, I surrender all of my sheep, you know, or I surrender all my goats. He was willing to give little pieces, but not himself until finally he holds on to God and said, I know that I can't let you go until you bless me. This is what I'm looking for. And so you see that with Jacob. And at the end of 32, that's where he found him. Verse 32, it speaks about, uh, by the way, verse 32 is a helpful aid to us Remember, remember that Moses is writing this, uh, these first five books of the Bible. He's writing this as the people of God had been called out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And now they're going to the promised land, remember? And on the way to the promised land, they had a 40-year kind of detour because they acted like they didn't have any sense. And so as they're marching to the promised land, Moses is writing this to the people. So he's not just codifying and putting down what they know to be true has happened in their history. Most of it they'd heard through oral history and stories and other ways. Moses is telling them, here's why we don't eat the hip socket to this day in, this, in the wilderness. Here's why we don't do this is because of this, because God touched it and he wrestled with God and this becomes a testimony. Here's why. And so that's what happens there in verse 32. He's writing to these people saying, this is why we don't do this. Now he continues in chapter 33 because now Jacob gets up and he's lifting up his eyes. And we've known, we talked about what that means. He's looking towards something. He's pointing in that direction. He's lifted up his eyes. But I believe here this is a literal statement, not just a figurative statement. He lifts up his eyes and he looks and behold, here comes Esau. Esau's coming, and just like it was told him, he has 400 men. Now, we don't know, Jacob does not know necessarily what the intent of Esau was at this point, but he has assumed in fear that Esau was coming to kill him. Because that's exactly what Esau said he would do back a few chapters before, that he was be at peace with God just as soon as I kill my brother, right? And some of y'all, again, may have felt that way before, but hopefully you hadn't acted on it. Esau is ready to act on it, Jacob thinks. And so here Jacob sees Esau coming. He's got these men with him. And so what happens? Jacob does what he says before. He divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children. Then Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself, and here's a big change, right? He himself did what? He went before them. Now remember his plan before the wrestling match was to send them all and he will come last to see if he can make it out alive. But now things have changed for Jacob. He recognizes the responsibility. He recognizes what's he. So if we see any progress in the faith here, Jacob comes before his people. And so you see the change in him maybe in that. He goes on before. Jacob seemingly now after this wrestling match with the Lord has been changed. He comes before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now recognize because of Jacob's deceit before, because of his de deception, what's happening now? In fact, in just a little bit, we'll see it. Jacob is going to refer to Esau as what? My Lord, right? He's going to show the respect to Esau. And what's Jacob doing at this point? He's bowing down to Esau. He's offering up, bowing down Esau, and he's going to call him my Lord. Remember what the prophecy was 
whenever those, these twins were born. Whenever these twins were born, the prophecy was the fact that, uh, that it would be Esau that would serve and bow down to Jacob. And so ultimately, what's happened here, again, the consequences of decisions, if you look back, you can see that in chapter 25. Two nations are in your womb, the Lord says to, to uh, Rachel, two nations, two peoples from which shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. So we see this idea the consequences here has reversed this role. Jacob now has to come back and bow down before Esau. So he bows down and Esau, this is the moment of truth. What's going to happen? But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. That's sweet, isn't it? I mean, seriously, you thought he was going to kill him. And, and, and he runs out and he kisses him and they weep together and cry. And, and so that's nice. And so here it is. And Esau lifts up his eyes and he saw all the family. Who are these with you, Jacob? Jacob says, these are the children whom God, you hear how Jacob's talking, God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near and they, there their children bowed down and Leah likewise and her children. And I bet Esau said, oh, that's the ugly one. I'm just kidding. That's probably, I was just making sure that's what the Bible says. I, I don't believe it's true. I would have never said that. Leah likewise and her children drew near, bowed down. Last Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. It was uncommon, if you will, for Jacob to go out with his entire family at this moment. It would have been more common for the heads of the families to meet and then to protect out and, and put them out. But Jacob here has his whole family and he said, I want you to meet them. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. In other words, I don't want your family or your stuff. These aren't gifts for me. No, please, if I've found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Jacob is no dummy. We've seen that before. In fact, he can be quite conniving. And what we've seen, though, is that he has changed a little bit. We've seen the progress of faith. But that testimony of the progress of faith came in the fact that Jacob leads out. He's going to be the one. He's going to accept whatever Esau comes. But we also note, start seeing some things here that Jacob still, he may not be Jacob the deceiver like he was that can pull it off. But that joker still, he still would manipulate the situation. For what happens here is the sense for Jacob, you would never receive a gift from your enemy in those days. If your enemy offers you up a gift, you would not receive this. This is your enemy. If you do receive the gift, then what happens? They're no longer your enemy. Receiving the gift would be admitting that no longer am I at war with you. You are now my friend. And so Jacob is insisting. Why? Because he wants to make sure the conversation with Esau stays on the top level. He doesn't want the enemy, Esau, to come back on this. He doesn't want this to be, you know what? 
I was waiting on Jacob to return. And when I saw him, I thought about killing him. Then I was like, he's got his fam with him and everything's great. So I hugged him and we cried. But then I thought about it a little bit later and now I'm ready to kill him. That's not what Jacob wants to happen. Jacob says, accept this gift. Take this gift, please. And he insists on giving him this gift he has of his livestock, of his family, of whatever it may be. He wants to give this because the moment Esau takes it, is the moment Esau says, I'm no longer angry, I'm not your friend. Jacob knows what he's doing. He knows how to manipulate the situation, if you will. So Esau said, all right, cool. Let's journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven, I'll guarantee you, Jacob ain't, he ain't nursed no flock of goats in his life. He's got people to do that. You know what I'm saying? But Jacob, Jacob does not want to go with Esau. And so he says, no, that can't happen. These people are frail. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord. Pa These are the flocks, by the way, that looked at sticks and were able to have babies that look like the sticks. They'll survive anything. They're alien flocks. But Jacob doesn't want him to know this. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children till I come to my, to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, by the way, what's happening here is Jacob's got no intention of going to Seir. You go on ahead. I'll be there. Y'all know how it works. My brother used to do that to me all the time. We'd be outside playing and we're having fun, and I would be beating him at wiffle ball. If he's listening, if you're listening to this, Rob, this is the truth. And I would be whipping him at wiffle ball, and he would say, oh, my stomach's hurting. I'm going in to use the bathroom. And would not come back. Because he knew if he came back, he'd get beat. So I'd be out there waiting on him for 25, 30 minutes, ready to finish this game, and he never returns. I walk inside. He's playing the Nintendo. That's the same plan Jacob here has. You go on ahead of me, Esau. I'll be there in a little bit. And he has no plan to go. No plan to follow him. You go on ahead. I'll be there in a little bit. I'll come to you in, in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So Jacob here tells Esau, yeah, that's good. I'll come hang out with you there. Go on ahead of me. I'll be there in a little bit and has no desire to do it. Manipulates the situation. Makes sure that Esau takes the gift. We're not at war anymore. You can't come back on me. I'll be there in a little bit. And he goes the opposite direction. But now we need to note something here. Jacob has settled down in this place, Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. So ultimately, Jacob has planted himself again in the land. But 
let us make note of something. Turn back with me to Genesis 31. Genesis 31. And I believe it's verse 13. Jacob in this passage in Genesis 31 is finally leaving Laban. He'd been with him 14 years, worked for his two wives, six more years and worked and produced more and more for him. He'd helped him out. And finally, he's cutting ties with Laban. Laban didn't want to let him go. So he says, we got to go. And so finally, he takes off and he's leaving Laban. And the Lord tells him to do this. And the Lord says in verse 13, as he comes to Jacob and appears to him, he says, I am the God of Bethel. Y'all remember Bethel. This is the house of God. Bethel is where before uh, Jacob had seen God over in chapter, in chapter 30 where God had appeared to him and he put a, a, a pillar there. And so he said, I'm the, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Right? Where is Jacob supposed to go? Bethel to his kindred. Where is Jacob going to end up? Shechem and Succoth. Now, we've seen this before. And I don't want you to lose sight of how this is laying out. Because what Jacob is doing is Jacob is still, while I believe he's on the right track, he's still making some, some not the smartest of decisions. He's still not doing exactly what God has said. In fact, if you look over at chapter 35, verse 1, Finally, God says to him again, God said to Jacob, arise, get up and go to Bethel and dwell there. This is now the second time he's done this. He's told him to go back to Bethel, go back to the land. Remember, at this point in Israel's history, the land is where the promise was made and given. The promise is tied to the land. And so you stay here, I will bless you. I will care for you. I will keep you. You stay here. Every time Abraham got in trouble, what happened? He left the land. Every time he got in trouble. Lot, if he would have stayed with Abraham, he would have been all right. But he looked toward Sodom and he liked it. And he started going that way. And before long, he's up in there. And before long, he's messed up. And even when the angel came and grabbed him, snatched him up out of Sodom, pulled him out with his two daughters and his wife, she's still looking back, turns into a pillar of salt. He knows that's not what he needs to be. But even at that point, Lot doesn't go back to where he's supposed to be. He goes up into the caves and finds his place. And then we see with Lot, disaster falls on him in the caves. He was defiled by his own daughters. So what happens next in this passage? Between what you see in verse 33, excuse me, chapter 33, Jacob is again trying to work the deal with God. This is where I want to say, God said go to Bethel. And Jacob says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to stay right here. I got a hundred bucks. 
It'll buy a piece of land. And I mean, I'm glad it go, you know, that $100 or whatever he had then went far there. He wouldn't get Jack here. But he has 100 bucks. He's going to get him a piece of land. And he's going to have a place. He's going to build some barns. For, in fact, he named the town Barns. You know what I'm saying? That's what, it, that's what sucketh means, booths. He names it this. He's built some barns up. These must be nice barns because that's what he named his whole place. And so he's got this place now. He's got it. He said, this is just fine, God. And then he builds an altar and erects it there and acts like, God, now bless my spot. Aren't you happy with me? Right? And, 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 and in this sense, you know, I'm trying to figure out how we can apply this to us. And, and you look at Jacob and you go, God, this guy, man, he told him to go to Bethel. If God told me to do something, man, I would jump up and do it at that moment. I'll look at you and tell you hogwash, right? Because God has told us to do countless things in our life that oftentimes we try to negotiate out of that deal. And I'm not talking about some move across town or this or that. I'm talking about loving our neighbor. I'm talking about caring for the poor. I'm talking about watching after the children and the widows. These things that we try to say, I'll, I'll do that this way or that way. You know, I try to work it out. Here's how I want to do it, God. Is this okay? Would you bless what I am doing? And that's exactly what Jacob does. He stops at this place, builds his house, got his barns, and now he says, Lord, bless it. Here's my altar for you. Here's my altar for you. The reason why I go through all that is because from the end of chapter 33 to the beginning of chapter 35, something happens and it's not pretty. In fact, I was reading today of an old commentator because I was, I was like, Lord, help me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Lord, give me some idea. Y'all obviously hadn't read it yet. You're about, to, you're about to get some knowledge. And I read one old commentator who said, we may well wonder if any man who had proper discernment ever draw a sermon from this text. <laughs> so here I am with no discernment whatsoever <laughs> trying to talk through this passage. In other words, this guy's saying, and this is a good and faithful man who loves the Lord and his word, saying, this one's rough. Because what happens here, I believe, is sandwiched just like Lot with his daughters, right? If he wasn't in the place God was calling him to be, he wasn't doing what God's called him to do, oftentimes that leads to disaster for your family and for your life. So Genesis chapter 34 is testimony to the fact that Jacob didn't go where God told him to go. He didn't do what God told him to do, and he's outside of God's plan and will for his life, and it could lead to disaster. It leads to disaster. We find out in verse 1 that Jacob's got a daughter named Dinah. A daughter named Dinah. He's there amongst the Canaanites. Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. That's not a good thing, right? She's hanging out with the Canaanites, with those who don't follow after the Lord, with those she's putting herself in a rough spot. And the last thing I want to ever do is victim blame at this point because the Bible's telling us ultimately that Jacob's had fault here. Jacob is not doing what God had told him to do and it's putting his entire family at risk. Now his daughter Dinah, who some believe at this time, if they look back 20 years, whatever, maybe between 12 to 15 years of age, maybe, who knows. His daughter, obviously she's not more than 20. Um, she's 
because of these uh, marriages and this arrangement and everything else. So maybe at this age, now he's put them in harm's way and Dinah is hanging out with the women of the land. These are the Canaanites whom he told not to be with, not to hang out with, don't mix with. He told Abraham that, he told Isaac that, he told Jacob even that. Go back and get your people. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hivite, the Hivites were Canaanites who would ultimately find God's judgment because of wickedness at some point. The prince of the land. So here is Shechem, the prince. Hamar's the king. He saw her. He seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Shechem, the prince, rapes Jacob's daughter. Humiliates her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young women. Later, this is nothing unusual in and of itself, by the way, in the text. I mean, uh, David's son does the same thing later. At least with, with this, with she Shechem and Dinah, Shechem commits this atrocity and he still loves her. He wants to marry her. He has care for her. David's son later will commit the same atrocity and say, I hate her more than I love her, right? So we see this in Scripture, but, but here he commits this atrocity to Dinah, but then he says, but I love her. He loved the young woman, spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter, Dinah. But his sons were with livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. Their sister, for, su for such a thing must not be done. But Hamar spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give, me, give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to his father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your sides. Whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great a bride price and a gift as you will. And I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. And so here Shechem's making this deal. And, and, and notice what the offer is. We'll get together. You can have some of our girls. We'll have some of you. We'll get together and do this. This is exactly what God had told them not to do, right? Don't do this. Don't mix with them because they don't Follow the same God. They don't follow after who I am. So don't do these things. Don't be, as this would state clearly, you know, don't be married to someone that doesn't believe in the same things you believe in, trust in the same things you trust, know the same promises you know. Don't do that. And so ultimately, this is the deal. Hey, we're open up. You give us this daughter. You allow this to happen. We'll do whatever you say. We'll open up. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamar, get that, deceitfully. Now, we shouldn't be surprised. You in this room may not really know this story. Y'all probably didn't learn it in GAs, RAs, or Mission Friends or whatever, right? <laughs> probably hadn't heard this growing up. It's probably one of them you skip over in your Jesus Storybook Bible and other things. 
And so ultimately we don't know. What we do know is the story of Joseph. That's coming in a couple chapters. In the story of Joseph, what happens? They don't like Joseph because he's telling the dreams and his dad likes him and he gets, his dad obviously likes him. He puts him like last, you know what I'm saying? He's like, Joseph, you hang out here with me. If Esau's going to kill anybody, let him kill all your brothers. Well, I think it's going to go over real well. So obviously here he's got it and he, he puts him there with him. So he loves Joseph and the brothers know this. And when Joseph comes out there to tell him something, what do they do to Joseph? Just shy killing him. Let's kill him. No, we can't kill him. That, we've got a little bit of moral standards. Let's kill a goat, put some blood on our stuff, throw him in a pit, sell him to whoever comes by next and put him into slavery. That'd be a lot better. And lie to our dad about it. Your son's dead. Uh, lesson learned here. Now, I can give story after story, and each and every one of you could. But whenever we as fathers or mothers or leaders act deceitfully, what should we expect our kids to do? Isn't it telling? They acted deceitfully. Don't look at it and go, hmm, that's weird. Jacob had made his living off of this. He was been the deceiver. And now the kids are acting the same way the dad does. They pick up on what he said. They're following after what he has done. The example is clear. And I'm not going to give y'all tonight. I insist that I will not give you any embarrassing examples of how my kids have done the same exact thing to me. You have your own deal with them, okay? But here we see the sons of Jacob acting just like dad did. And they act deceitfully. And so this shouldn't surprise us. When we read this story, the Joseph story shouldn't surprise us. That's what they do. And so they act in deceitfully because they had defiled the sister Dinah. Now you can say they had a good cause. Obviously they do. But remember, God calls us to not be deceitful in life, but seek after truth. And justice must come. The son, Shechem, must be punished and justice must be met. But it is not met through deceitful actions of our own. It's met through an exposure of the truth, right? Being faithful to the truth. We'll talk about that in a minute. They said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a disgrace to us. Remember, circumcision was a mark of being a part of the covenant people of God back in the early part of Genesis. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you. We will take, by the way, if you're looking to convert people to Christianity, this is not a good method, okay? <laughs> this is not the way you convert them. You remember the story of Constantine and his army, right? You remember they're at the Milvian Bridge. He's getting ready to meet Antony. It's the major battle. And he sees a vision that his army would go to battle under the sign of the cross, right? The sign of the cross. So he puts a cross on his warrior's chest. He puts it on their shields everywhere. The sign of the cross, which was the Christian symbol of the day. You go to battle like this. And he believed also that if they're going to battle under the sign of the cross, they need to be baptized. So he lined up his army and marched them under the waterfall, all to be baptized at one moment. That's not a good conversion technique, okay? That's not what we call evangelism. It's a misuse of the good things of God for your own purposes and principles. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. Let's do this. Let's do it. Let's, 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 let's. All of you guys have to get circumcised. That's how we'll do it. Then we'll take our daughter and we'll be gone. Their words pleased Hamar and Hamar's son Shechem and the young man 
the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now, he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamar and his son, loving his son here, this is the one that I've got to believe in him. Shechem came to the gate of their city, spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives. Let us give them as daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. If I was in the city and I heard that, I'd be like, oh, what? <laughs> That's when you've got to question it. You know what I'm saying? What you talking about? But no, this guy was well loved, obviously. Only let us agree with them. They will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamar and his son Shechem. And every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of the city. And meanwhile... Meanwhile, Jacob's sons, especially Simeon and Levi, on the third day when they saw this, right? Meanwhile, they go, huh, watch this. On the third day, I'm not going to tell you what it says, but it says when they were sore. Y'all know what it's talking about. Every one of them has been circumcised. When they were sore, the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords, came against the city while it felt secure, and killed all the males. This is not a pretty scene, is it? They killed all the males. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with a sword, took Dinah out of Shechem's house, and went away. The sons of Jacob came up upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, all their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Man, isn't that something? There's a reason why I believe, again, that Jacob manipulates the situation with his brother Esau, who had not only welcomed him back with a kiss, who had not only welcomed him back with a kiss, but had received his gift even. And when Esau says, you can come and even dwell with me and I will care for you, he says, yeah, I'll be there in a minute. But instead, he goes to this other place, buys it and tries to set up there and says, now, Lord, bless me here. Bless what I'm doing. Bless my decision." When the whole time the mandate upon him was go back to Bethel. Go back to that land. That's the call. That's the commandment. And sandwiched in between God's call, God, uh, Jacob making the decision not to go to Bethel, God's call to say get up and go is this nasty, terrifying story of what happens when we don't follow after the Lord and his commands. What happens to us? What Jacob should have done, I believe, was to say to Esau, Esau, I appreciate it, bro. I'm thankful that you have not killed me first. That's a good thing. Thank you for not killing me. I'm thankful that you have met me with tears. I'm glad to see your face again. How's mom and dad and them doing, right? That's what he should have said. And then he should have said, God has told me to go back to Bethel. So I'm not going to follow you to Seir. I appreciate the invitation, but I'm going to go there. Instead, Jacob hides out, does his own thing, and asks God to bless him. Tries to take it into his own hands. 
tries to get God to, to bless what he's doing. He still is not following after him like he needs to be. Now, I said to you, he just wrestled with the Lord just a couple chapters ago. He just turned around. But if we believe that Christians themselves, even followers of the Lord, don't make mistakes, then we're in the wrong place, right? And we even see here this battle that's taking place, that Romans 7, go read it later, this Romans 7 passage of this nature's going after and we're trying to, we want to live right, we still do stupid stuff and we want to live right, but we still do stupid stuff. And Jacob here still has this idea that his plans are better than God's, his will work out. And what shook him out of this was waking up one day and seeing not only his daughter defiled by the Canaanites, but his sons now guilty of murder, mass murder. That's what shook him out of it. And what I fear for us sometimes is what will it take to shake us out of our own disobedience, right? What will it take to shake us out of not following after God and doing what he calls? I hopefully nothing. Hopefully we will do what God calls us to do. We will look to his word. We'll set up our life according to his path and his promises. We will look to him, lean in on those truths and trust them. Trust them. Is that the end all be all? No. You can be exactly where God wants you to be, doing exactly what God wants you to be doing. And your children still may go astray. They still may wander. They still may stray. But at least there, you know, God is in control of those things. And you're doing and you're at the very place you need to be. When you're not following after the Lord, then sometimes we need to know that the door is wide open for the devil to attack in any way he can. To ruin and to trash what we would hope to be true. And Jacob realizes this. And he wakes up one day and he looks out and he says to Simeon and Levi, this is Levi. I got a kid named Levi. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Named him because what, what is Levi going to do? He becomes the head of the priestly line. He looks at Levi. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Does that sound like the proper response? It's a little bit selfish. Y'all know the I's and the me's in there? What have you done, man? Now everybody hears it. They're going to come kill us. They're going to attack us. We don't have the fortitude for that. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute, they said. Simeon and Levi were after justice. Uh, Jacob, a few, a few chapters later, in Genesis chapter 49, is on his deathbed in Egypt. It's funny how the scriptures work. The people of God start off in a wonderful, God-blessed garden called Eden, Adam and Eve, right? That's how Genesis begins. And Genesis ends with the people of God in a foreign country, in a foreign land, under a foreign ruler. And there Jacob's brought to his sons again, and he blesses them. And listen to what he says to Simeon and Levi. Jacob never forgets this. Simeon and Levi, chapter 49, verses 5, 6, and 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their will, willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. With 
this statement at the end of his life, Jacob had come to realize what happened with Simeon and Levi, right? He shook up and realized that these guys were out of control. These guys were out of control. He sees it as sinful, what they do. He understands it as sinful. And they're going to be scattered. By the way, the Levitical priest, did they have a land that's theirs? Did they get an inheritance of property? No, they didn't have it. They had Levitical cities that they could find to and scatter to, but they didn't receive that inheritance because of this very thing. And so ultimately here, ultimately here, Jacob has to realize it. But in all of this, the grace of God becomes even more real, right? Even in the midst of atrocity and great sinfulness, God is gracious. And God doesn't say to Jacob, all right, bro, it's over. I'm done with you. I'm finished. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm going to find somebody else and, and do some other plot twist on this thing, okay? God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there. Not in Succoth. Not in another place. Not in some other. Make an altar there. Let me spell this out for you clearly. Go to Bethel. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Not over here. Make it there. God's direction becomes even more clear to Jacob. He had already said it. Now let's focus in, Jacob. And that, to me, is the most comforting part of this passage. When you read this, it's again a reminder that evidence of the divine origin of Scripture here is clear. If you're truly trying to write a book that you want to believe is real and follow after, right? If you're truly trying to write something that you want other people to come in and follow, you don't include this story. You don't include it. You don't put it in there. If I'm trying to write something and say, hey, I'm going to start a new movement. I want y'all to come join me. By the way, some of the people that helped me start it uh, killed a whole city of people. It was great. Join it. Come on. It's fun. That's not what you do. To me, again, this testifies the undergirding of the divine order of Scripture. It's not hiding the faults of man. It's not hiding the sinfulness of man. And remember, the main character in this story is not Jacob or, or Simeon or Levi, but it is God. And God, even in the midst of their great sinfulness, gives great grace. A grace that is greater than all their sin. Right? And even when they're sinning, God says, let me tell you again, get up, go to Bethel and build your life there. Build it there. And my prayer for us tonight is we don't hear that voice of God after tragedy has struck because we hadn't been following him. We don't hear that voice of God after our family has been destroyed because we haven't been faithful. And everything here, I'm not blaming, I don't want to, I don't want to, um, Victim blame in any way. I'm not blaming Dinah. I'm not blaming even Simeon and Levi. They got an answer for themselves as, as Jacob does. But this choice was clear in the text that Jacob chose not to go back to where God told him to, but to go to another place, set up life there. And after that disaster, just like happened with Lot, just like happened when Abraham left over and over again. By the way, it's the same thing that will happen to, to uh, Ruth and Elimelech when they leave the land. Disaster strikes, right? In the book of Ruth, when you leave this, this is where God said he will bless. You stay here in my will. This is where you stay. So how do we bring this back to us? This is not an easy passage to ultimately do, but here's what I will say. 
in the heart of this, maybe if we're looking at some positive motivation for Jacob's sons, if we're looking at some positive motivation, we'll say, hey, they were after justice. Don't do that to my sister. They treated her poorly. They're after justice. But does this sound like any justice was really done? The true way, the true way ultimately that injustice is going to be answered or corrected. We fight for it. We fight for it with everything we have. We fight for it in our country. We fight for what's right and what's true over and over again. But what we recognize is that Christ Jesus will come and he will not shed other people's blood in order to find justice. He's not going to come to find justice and kill all the sinners. That's not what he's going to do. Christ Jesus will come, and in order for him to bring true justice, what is he going to do? He's going to shed his own blood. He's going to give himself up. For justice to be served, for it to be right, somebody's got to be punished for their sin. Of course. In fact, Hebrews tells us that every single sin will receive a just penalty. And so how do our sins receive a just penalty and us still go to heaven, right? How does that work? Because we have one who's going to come for us. The true Israel, if you will. He's going to come. He's going to stand in our place. And he'll seek after justice, not by shedding the blood of anybody else, but his own blood in our place. That's the way justice will come. And then he's going to look at us and he's going to say, now, get up and follow me. Because the blessing of God, I believe, as we look at the full arc and text textual evidence of scripture. As I've said before, the blessing of God for us today is not found in a geographic piece of land. The blessing of God for us today is found in his son, Jesus Christ, which is why the apostle Paul over and over again, as I pointed out in Philippians, tells us in Christ, you must be in Christ. In Christ, we have found love. In Christ, we have found grace. In Christ, we have found mercy. So you're not blessed by being in a particular geographical area. You're blessed by being in a person. That's Jesus Christ. And there's where the promises of God are. You're found in him, not anywhere else. You don't set up your altar over here and say, come bless me. You set up your life in Christ. Trusting in him, depending upon him, having wrestled with him and said, I'm not letting you go, right? Even when the sun comes up, we still hold on to Jesus. That's what happens here. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the incredible grace of God. Even when we do stupid, awful things sometimes. Even when we think stupid, awful thoughts in our head. He still comes to us. It says, get up, Josh, and follow me. Get up and come after me. He doesn't leave me there. He brings me with himself. Because he has brought true justice. Not by shedding my blood, but shedding his own. And in him now we trust. We often hear home is where the heart is. And I want to call hogwash on that. As Christians, remember... The heart is deceitful above all things. In fact, who can even understand it, the scripture says. Our society uses phrases like that, but they don't understand the capacity of it. Our home is where the Lord is. Our home is where Christ is. That's where we must be found. That does not mean everything's going to be hunky-dory. That's not what it means. What it means is 
the blessing of God is there on our life. And whatever does come our way, he's never left us or forsaken us. What this story tells me again is that even when we can do crazy, harsh, terrible things, God is still gracious and kind to forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our sins. So Genesis 34, we got through it. We just got a few more weeks before Judah rapes his daughter-in-law. So we'll, we'll get that coming for you guys. But you may need a week off. So you got a week off next week. You got a week off. God's word is faithful. And again, I believe this speaks to the truth of it. It doesn't hide any of the faults of people or the people that he invests in. It doesn't hide any of that. Just like God knows our own faults and still he loves us and cares for us, right? And so help us to be found in him. That's where his blessing flows, found in him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Even the tough passages, God, are good for us. As Paul tells Timothy, all of it is breathed out by you. And it's good for our reproof, for our correction, for our edification, all of those things. Help us, God, to look to Christ Jesus. And if we don't get anything else out of a passage like this, help us to look for the one who forgives even our greatest of sins, Jesus Christ our Lord. Help us to look for the one who has truly brought justice, not by shedding others' blood, but giving of his own. Help us to trust in Christ, Father. All of this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.